0: 15 today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 15. Uh, We are in technically week 24 of this series, but we're in week two of like restarting it. Uh, We restarted last week. Uh, So today we're going to look at Acts 15, uh, kind of just overview of some of the important things. Uh, Now, if you're newer here, you may not have been here when we were last in Acts when we did the first 23 weeks. Um, But all of that material is on our church website at landsdown.church. Uh, slash Acts. So if you go Lansdowne Church Acts, you'll get everything that we've done up to this point. Uh, sermons from me and a couple other people as well in our church that are part of this series uh, leading up to today. Uh, those are all there for you. Or if you go to YouTube, it's there all in a in a playlist. Uh, however you want to do that. Um, so one of the things that we see, if you've been maybe following along reading in the, in the book of Acts, uh, last week we uh, worked our way through chapter 14, but the very end of chapter 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas return now to the church at Antioch after their first missionary journey, and they give a report of what that missionary journey had accomplished by God's grace. So I'm going to actually start in 1427, uh, and then we'll get to 15 the first 35 verses or so. is what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, this is the church at Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, you might remember back to Acts chapter 13, uh, where this same church that they're talking to now is praying and fasting and asking God uh, what they should do. Uh, If you remember that scene, it says that there was some elders, some apostles gathered around, they were fasting, they were praying, and the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set Paul and Barnabas apart for a work. Uh, Well, now we're kind of on the other side of that work, and so imagine the excitement that this church and its leaders have as they're hearing about what God did uh, and how he is working by his grace to redeem and to reconcile people to himself through Jesus. Uh, And remember, the church is pretty new at this point. This is a new thing, a new movement going on here. Uh, And so this report is probably blowing their minds. It's enlarging their hearts. I don't know if you've ever been here or maybe at another place or church when a missionary gives a report of lives changed. It's amazing. Uh, This this is why uh, we hold pretty tightly that baptism is an act of the church, that it should happen in front of the congregation, because that's like a missionary report of what God has done and so uh, that's really great and awesome and yet as is always the case uh, there is spiritual opposition that rises up and don't think that this isn't some spiritual warfare this isn't the the work of our enemy Satan uh, opposing what God is up to so Acts chapter 15 verse 1, right? This is just after they declare all that God had done. And we read Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. So some other guys show up and are teaching the people there. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is a contrast to what Paul and Barnabas had been proclaiming and teaching on their journey their good news on their journey was that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. Now, understand here that these men, who are are what the Bible calls Judaizers, uh, they didn't deny salvation by grace per se. They're not saying salvation doesn't come by grace. They're simply saying it's kind of grace plus. That you have to go through this other process. Specifically here, grace plus circumcision. Uh, But, Here's what we're going to see. Grace plus cannot work. It doesn't work, but it also cannot work. Why? Uh, It can't be God's grace plus whatever you want to insert there, because if that's how salvation works, it's actually not God that saves, it's the plus that saves. If you add a plus to the gospel, you're actually thinking, my functional savior is that plus, whatever that is. And so it can't work that way. This was and this is a huge deal for us. When we get to the end of today, we're going to all have some pluses that we need to get rid of in how we think about the gospel. There are not many things worth getting into a theological fight over, but this is one of them. Adding to the gospel is one of those. Because this is the kind of grace plus thinking that some people will use to prey on other people. And even if it's not malicious, it leads people astray, away from the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas don't want to have any of it. Verse 2 starts this way. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Okay, This is strong language. There's probably some shouting. This is an intense argument. Passionate. And so it's safe to assume... That the Judaizers are claiming that they have support from the church in Jerusalem. Which, if you didn't know, is kind of the head church. This is where it started. It's where things are being sent from. And this is where decision-making authority on issues like this is coming from. And so, of course, if that was said, Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, no, no. They're not delivering some official word from the church. And so what's happening here is there's division among the brothers. Division among the church, which is... uh, Terrible. It's the worst thing that uh, can happen for a church. Now, it's so vital at this stage of the church to deal with this division so that the church isn't hindered in growing and moving forward and multiplying. And so the only solution here is to send Paul and Barnabas back up to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders. Uh, and so this, this duo, Paul and Barnabas, they set out for Jerusalem, the holy city. Uh, and en route, they spread great joy to other believers. They keep talking about what God has done among the Gentiles. We see that in verse 3. But when they get to Jerusalem, they find that um, there is a, 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 a segment of these Judaizers who are really entrenched in the church there. Okay, So they're, they're Judaizers who are part of the church. Look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, here is an easy route when it comes to viewing the Pharisees in Acts. Right, The easy route is just to dehumanize them and demonize them. Right? We we use language like that. Oh, don't be a Pharisee, right? But I mean, there were Pharisees in the church. They're part of God's people, right? It's easy to just demonize them into like a monolith of the bad guys, right? If this was an old western, they'd be wearing black hats. That's how that worked. Now it's true here that some of the Pharisees who had been converted to Christ, right? And hear me, converted to Christ, they were believers. They were insisting on a version of Christianity which added something. And so to become a Christian, according to them, you had to go through a procedure very much like becoming a Jewish proselyte. So the apostles are faced with a huge problem here. And this problem, this theological problem, is compounded, and listen to me, it's compounded by the fact that these Pharisaic Christians are not intrinsically evil people. They're not bad people. Now, if they were wearing, you know, holding pitchforks and have horns on their head, that'd be really easy. You just kick them out, whatever, it's over. But they genuinely had come to know and love Jesus, and so this is a theological struggle for these Pharisees. And understand this when they had genuinely come to know Christ, their faith had cost them dearly in their community. But also, they are a product, like you and I, of their upbringing. They're influenced by the things they had been through up to that point in their life. One commentator um, named Lloyd Ogilvie said it this way. Think of the stability of the Pharisees' training in Hebraism. Think of his immersion in Mosaic law and tradition, his pride in being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education and joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family as he is circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and the wonder he felt sitting at the feet of elder Pharisees, studying the scriptures. Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah. Become one with him as he grew to full manhood and earned the revered status of a Pharisee, and consider how he must have burst with satisfaction as he put on the dignified robes of a leader of Israel. Right? These are people who have gone through a long process and have accomplished something and we can relate to that they have a background that they come to jesus with and so do we but into this sort of uh, well-ordered religious life comes the claims of jesus for them and so there's like a civil war inside and you've probably felt this civil war too jesus comes after your stuff right he comes after everything And then for many of these Pharisees, the ones who are part of the church here, comes conversion. And as Jesus called it, new life from above. And so, they've gained a lot, right? They've gained eternal life by knowing Jesus. But what have they lost? They have lost parents, relatives, friends who would maybe consider them dead for making this change. And so they lose everything because of their association with Jesus. And so then, like us, it's natural for some of them to find it difficult to let go of everything that they came to Jesus with. Even though they are Christians, and I know that they're portrayed as the opposite of that, but even though they're Christians, they have a hard time like we do to give away kind of, all the things that made them distinct, and particularly for them to give away centuries of distinctives that had set their people apart from the world. So, what happens with good intentions? Right? Let's assume good intentions of the Pharisees. What do they do? They add those distinctives and traditions onto others. And don't we do the same thing? And so if Jesus was a, according to them, a Hebrew Messiah, right? This is their thinking. Anyone wanting his salvation would have to become a Hebrew first. How else could that person understand the full meaning and the purpose of God? And so the Pharisee Christians banded together and they wanted to make sure that nobody slipped by Mount Sinai on the way to Calvary. Right? So... Here's the reality for all of us, though. We're all influenced by our backgrounds. All of us. Each of us has experienced some kind of, and you may not even put this category with it some of it, all of us have experienced some kind of doctrinal or other practical kinds of like distortions because of our past experience or our environment we view things we view god in a particular way because of our experience and so the challenge though is to identify those when the gospel comes crashing into them and most of that stuff happens after we come to know jesus Right? We don't get rid of all of our background issues before we come to Jesus and then come perfectly. No, we just come to Jesus and then he walks with us for the rest of our life going, you know, why don't we deal with this issue? Why don't we let go of this thing that you've got in your past? And so the challenge is to run to Jesus and not back to our traditions that we came to him with. So here in Acts 15, the future of the church of Jesus and the doctrine of salvation are at stake. This is a big deal. The doctrine of how somebody gets saved is at stake here. And so history and experience have proven in your life, if you can think about it, that anything, again, that's a plus or a co-requirement with faith, pushes faith to the side eventually and becomes the functional savior. So if it's Jesus plus perfect church attendance then that pushes faith in Jesus aside and we start to mark our salvation by how well we do at that. Or if it's Jesus plus whatever you want to add in there, that becomes the functional salvation. And so here the issue was that it would have been, become salvation by circumcision. That's what would have happened here had the apostles not held their ground. So are you wondering if anything like this in the church exists today? It absolutely does. Let me give you two quick examples, one of which might be a little more close to home based on some of our backgrounds and the geography where we find ourselves. I grew up in a tradition of the church that I found out later teaches a false doctrine that's called baptismal regeneration. This is the idea that salvation is really not fully found until not only do we trust in Jesus, but also by are we baptized by immersion in water. And in our tradition, we think baptism is vital, but we don't think it saves you. And so what happens there? Well, our faith ends up moving off of Jesus and into the waters of baptism. And so now looking back on that, I can look back on my growing up in that church and go, oh, that's why they were talking about baptism every chance they got. Why? Because in good faith, they wanted to make sure that people really understood salvation as they saw it. Even though now looking back, I can say that's kind of grace plus. The second example, it's a little more common one here in this area based on Roman Catholicism that many have. And this is kind of what we would call grace plus sacraments, right? Uh, We take the Lord's Supper each week. We do that as an act of remembrance and participation with Jesus. But, right, we, hear me clearly, taking the Lord's Supper does not save you. The Lord of the Supper saves you, not the meal. But the meal is important. And so theologically, the truth of the gospel is at stake in Jerusalem. And don't forget, relationally, the stakes are really high too. But thankfully, what we know is the Jerusalem council, they, they pressed on, they followed Jesus. And by doing this, they gave us a foundation on which to build grace into our relationships and our theology. And that's what we're going to see. So by the time we get to verse 7 of Acts 15, we see that there's already been a bunch of debate. And so now Peter is going to, apparently no longer able to sit still. He stands up in verse 7, and he speaks. He says this, verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days, and just let me point this out. He's talking to these bad Pharisees as well when he says brothers. That's how he views them. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So, Peter, what's he referring to? He's referring to his ministry years earlier in uh, seeing Gentiles come to faith, particularly at a man named Cornelius's house. Uh, And his entire household receives Jesus and the Holy Spirit through grace alone, by faith alone. And his conclusion is, God has made no distinction between them and us. And here then comes Peter's kind of pronouncement in verse 10. Now, therefore, he's going to call them out here. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now, this is universe shattering theology right here. He is calling them out for hypocrisy, right? He's saying, You can't even follow the law yourself, and now you want to lay it on others for salvation? No way. Right? What Peter knew is what we read later on in the New Testament, and that is that God had given them the law as what the Bible calls a schoolmaster to, to lead them to Jesus by demonstrating at every turn that they are sinners in need of mercy. See this in Galatians 3. We see this in Romans 3. So the law of God is a mirror that God holds up to you so that you can see that you cannot save yourself. I was thinking about this earlier this week as I was on the baseball field with some of the boys on my team, and I, one of the things you do as a coach is you have very frank conversations. They come to you and say, coach, how come I'm not leading off? And I say, well, you're batting 110 right now. That's not good enough. And in an eternal scale, this is what the law of God does to us. It tells us the truth about us, except that we can never get better on our own so just like you and I the, the ones that Peter's talking to have have all all of us have transgressed the basic commandment right to love God with all your heart your soul your mind and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself all of us have transgressed that so what can we do with this reality what are we supposed to do with that weight all we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God that's it And Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Every person, criminal, rule follower, rich, poor, old, young, every person, doesn't matter what your background is or any of the other things that we use to describe people, every person comes into God's family the same way by the undeserved kindness of God through Jesus, and that's it. And if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. It is. And so with the conclusion of Peter's speech this turning point shows up and we see that in verse 12 by the silence of the multitude. And so finally, during that silence, Paul and Barnabas probably kind of seize the moment, and they verify what Peter had said by talking about all the things that God has done through them among the Gentiles. They talk through the miracles of their first missionary trip. They talk about those, uh, and those people that are gathered there are just kind of stunned at the goodness of God. Like, wow, I, I mean, I guess God really can do whatever he wants. He is God, right? James then stands up, and he speaks And you may remember that James is Jesus' earthly half-brother. So he's revered in the church. He'd been visited personally by Jesus after the resurrection. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, James had a couple awesome nicknames. I think I've mentioned some of these before. Uh, He was called James the Just because of his holiness, his justice, his piety. But he was also called Camel Knees because his knees had calluses from the amount of time he spent praying. And so he's a pillar in the church. And in this text, he appears to be the moderator of this assembly that's now kind of debating this really, really important thing. And some call him even the first bishop of Jerusalem, that he oversees the whole thing. So everyone's listening when James stands up to speak. And so the Judaizers, maybe they're thinking, good, he's about to set them straight. He's about to set Peter and Paul and Barnabas right, but James goes in a very different direction. He shows them how the conversion of the Gentiles is actually in accord with the Old Testament. Look at verse 14. This is James speaking. So what James is doing is he's taking texts from the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 9, and he's showing that according to the Old Testament, which they viewed as scripture, uh, the Old Testament prophets, God's people would consist of sort of, imagine two concentric circles filled with people. At the core, there's Israel, which he calls the tent of David, or the tabernacle of David in another translation. And then gathered around them, inside of God's family, would be Gentiles, which here he calls the remnant of mankind. And this remnant is going to share the messianic blessings without becoming Jewish proselytes. So James is showing that everything that's happening here in Acts 15 is just as the scriptures have prophesied. Nothing weird is happening here. He's like, guys, this is what our own scriptures said would happen. And then James makes his pronouncement, which is really at the heart of everything here in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. So James has now... A word for both groups. To the Judaizers, he basically says, hey, back off the Gentile new believers, all right? Don't trouble them. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Don't put weights on it, don't put extra burden on them. But then to the Gentile believers, he gives some restrictions. Interesting. The first two make sense, right? Stay away from idolatry, stay away from anything having to do with idols. Number two, avoid sexual immorality, fornication. But number three, don't, particip- don't partake of meat that has been strangled or has blood in it, right? We get the idolatry, there's only one God and only He's to be worshipped. Fornication has always been forbidden uh, because it's, it, it, at that time it's, it's rampant among the Gentiles. And so he's telling them, hey, you can't keep participating in this way of the world. But why the third restriction? Look at verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in other words, there are Jewish communities that exist in nearly every city, and the Gentile converts to Christianity here are instructed not to do something that would unnecessarily offend the Jewish religious sort of way of living. So he gives us... Two complementary principles for grace filled living. First, if we are under grace, then we don't make non biblical requirements of others. Right? Specifically, what he's getting at here, we don't make uh, requirements that come from secondary cultural traditions. In that day, this meant not putting a Jewish lifestyle onto Gentiles in order to become a Christian. Today, what does that mean? It means we don't make areas of our lifestyle that are not spelled out in Scripture normative for others if they're going to be a good Christian. For example, how we dress, the way we do things at our church, the standards of living we think is right or wrong, personal taste, musical preference, especially in church, right? If we thrust these on others as necessary to taste the grace of god we are repeating the mistake and even the sin of the judaizers in this text we become graced plus believers instead of grace alone and we so easily push our preferences on to others we we do it we don't even un, we don't even know we're doing it sometimes we assume they'll either do things our way or be unspiritual We too often put others through kind of the paces of our own heritage before we fully accept them as brothers and sisters. And this is not the way of Jesus. Now, when we talk about this kind of religious legalism, here's what we tend to focus on. We tend to focus on the harm that this will do to the gospel itself, which is true. And we tend to focus on... um, Those who might believe, if not for this kind of legalism, which is also true, but I don't think we often enough talk about how poisonous it is for our own souls when we walk in this kind of legalism, where we add to the gospel. I can't tell you how often in my own soul and in so many conversations with church folks, this comes up, right? And in people that are good people with good faith, this comes up. We, we end up being enslaved to our extra-biblical stuff, thinking that we're free, but we're not free. We are so often enslaved to making sure that new Christians get it together and become like us before we fully accept them into the community of faith or whatever, instead of just freely celebrating the fact that God saves people. I mean, he saved me, Right? And I have to confess to you, this is a raging battle in my own soul right now in my life. I want so badly for other people to follow rules that I have not been myself able to follow. And so, right, I want mercy for me, but for others? I want to see repentance before I'll believe that God loves them. I want to see, I don't know, I want to see some repentance before I... That is wicked! That is wicked! That's wickedness. If you know the parable, I'm the servant who throws his fellow servant into jail over a small debt. So James' first principle here is that we don't add anything to grace, and that feels scary. His second principle is this. Because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our own freedom for the sake of others. There was not anything intrinsically wrong right, with eating a rare steak. This is what James is kind of talking about here. But James is saying, eat it well done for the sake of fellowship with the Jews who are in every town. Paul states the same principle in 1 Corinthians 9. The way of Jesus in this principle. You've heard me say this so many times. Jesus said nobody took his life from him, but he laid it down of his own accord. And now the call for those of us under the grace that's been given to us by the laying down of Jesus' life of his own accord is for you to do the same thing. You are under sheer grace. So now you get to participate with Christ in the willful laying down of your life for the sake of others. And that might mean the actual laying down of your life, or it might just mean you're not getting your preferences. So now the apostles and the elders basically draft a letter, and they send it with Paul and Barnabas and their friends Silas and Judas Barsabbas, and they take it back to Antioch. And so there's a conclusion that's almost word for word uh, as suggested by James. Look at verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, "...to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well." Now remember, this is written to Christians. They've already come to faith in Jesus. And so the Council's Proclamation um, has been called, in some of the stuff I read this week on it, has been called one of the most courageous documents in history. Because the authors are declaring the truth, even though that they know that it's going to antagonize the Jewish establishment. And so from this time on, Christian work in Jerusalem became very difficult for them. While they were still trying to carry on a ministry to the Jewish nation there, the apostles basically refused to do or say anything that would impede the progress of the Gentiles coming to faith so they held the line and praise God for that because all of us are in this room so listen to what this means for the new Christians at Antioch verse 30 so when they were sent off they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together they delivered the letter and when they had read it they rejoiced because of its encouragement now why were they encouraged this letter imposed dietary restrictions on them and lifestyle restrictions why were they happy about that remember What was possibly coming back to them from the debate? They they could have gotten a letter back that said, Dear Christians at Antioch, you will have to follow the entire Jewish law, including circumcision, in order to be included in the church of Jesus. You'll need to go through the entire process of becoming a Jewish proselyte before your salvation in Jesus is legitimate. That's what they could have gotten back. And so for the believers at Antioch, these are pretty minor restrictions in relation to being able to, to minister to Hebrew brothers that were in their city, and that's nothing compared to the burden of the law. So compared to, with what the Jerusalem Council could have insisted on, the final recommendation in that letter is is just relief. They're They're overjoyed. So what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for our lives as we go out of here? Well, first we preach grace alone through faith alone. That's it. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon that basically said, If you're not getting accused of preaching cheap grace, you're not preaching the gospel. Ephesians two verses eight and nine says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's an old saying, the only thing you bring to salvation is the sin that made it necessary, right? It is not a result of works. It's not a result of any little plus you added. It's only God. You have nothing to boast in but the cross. You have nothing to say except, I don't know, but he rescued me. Second, like James the Just, we tolerate nothing else. We don't give in to a little little bit of religion. Ah, just one more extra rule when it comes to salvation. Why does grace feel so risky though, right? Because you can't control other people. You can't control other people's sinfulness. You can't control your own. We know that anyone who comes to Jesus by grace is just as wicked as we know we are on the inside. And so we want to add to grace a little bit so that we don't have to maybe be reminded that God can actually save anyone. Can grace be abused? Of course it can. But we can never give in to the temptation to add to it. Grace plus is actually no grace at all. And Jesus refuses to come to us by any other means besides his grace alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the reality that your salvation comes by no other means except that you just decided to do it because you love us. We thank you for the freedom of knowing that salvation isn't actually about us at all. It's about you and what you're doing in this world. So that sets us free to love other people radically, to lay our preferences and our lives down because we're not even our own. We were bought with a price. Father, would you remind us, for those of us in this room who have been through uh, the baptismal waters, would you remind us of what was said over us that day, that we went into the tomb and we came back out a new life. And that new life is found in you, Jesus. Would you help us to walk in your way, to lay ourselves down, to not cause the little ones to stumble by either the things that we want to add on to the grace or the ways that we want to continue to live in this world. Jesus, we thank you that your grace will eradicate both from us if we will submit to you. So we pray for that this morning. Father, we ask you to bless our time as we go out from here. And as we uh, long to see more more and more people come to know and love you and follow uh, Jesus, your Son, empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.